The legislature starts out with a bang as a new House Speaker appoints as many as 42 new committee chairmen. This is the week of January 14th. Welcome to Grand Divisions. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. Kicking off the show, we've got to immediately get to the fact that uh, House Speaker Glenn Cassida, who was sworn in on the first day of the legislature, um, has most recently appointed 42 people to serve as committee chairman uh, in many new roles. Which uh, is a huge jump from the number of chairmen. It's previously. a massive. What was it uh, previously? It was, what, 28? Yeah. Uh, so and That was including full and subcommittees. That's right. That's right. Um, we caught up with Cassida after this decision, and one of the things that uh, I had asked was essentially, uh, you know, this, this could be a major move that could change the way the legislature operates. And Cassidy's response was, yeah, that's right. I really like the way that the legislature, specifically the House, operated 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years ago was under the rule of Democrat Jimmy Nafee. Uh, so to make that statement is really, A, a slight to House Speaker Beth Harwell, and B, uh, it, it's an odd thing for a Republican to make, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I I don't think either of us were here in Tennessee 10 years ago. I know I wasn't. But Jimmy Nafee had a reputation and he he got what he wanted for the most part. As Representative David Hawk, who opposed Glenn Cassida in the run for speaker, said, I was there when there was ruling with an iron fist, alluding to the rule of Jimmy Nafee. And, and David Hawk. I don't know that he actually suggested when he was running for speaker that Cassida would be another Jimmy Nafee, but he specifically brought up Jimmy when he was giving his pitch for why he should be speaker. He said, I'm not going to be that guy. Um, among the more notable committee appointments are, are there, there's tons to go through. So we can't obviously break that down here. But um, I think two initial interesting ones are the appointment of Susan Lynn and Andy Holt to be uh, chairs of the, the uh, finance and finance subcommittee in the House. Um, Lynn has some experience and background in economics. Andy Holt is somebody who has, in the last three budgets, voted against them. So to appoint somebody who has historically, or at least recently, been opposed to the budget system, not system, but what's gone into the budget, is very interesting. Did you ever hear back from uh, William Lamberth or anyone when you talked to them about that appointment, about what that could mean I for the budget? I did. I, I went back and tried to listen to the audio. Um, my, I accidentally shut it off when I was talking to Lamberth. But Lamberth, the, the majority leader of the House, essentially said that he's not worried about, uh, you know, that uh, that Andy Holt has been uh, clearly had an influence. And now he's going to be in a position that he can flourish. He thinks that he has sh he's scrutinized the budget in the past. And now he's going to be in a position to uh, really influence things. Well, it sounds like Andy Holt's kind of a changed man. I mean, he stood on the floor and basically said he supported a rule change that essentially uh, prevents legislators from starting the session, airing their grievances. And Which he said, he you know, I was, did all I, was, the time. I was chief of them last year. You know, I used to do this all the time, but but now I see that maybe that isn't the best thing to do. So it does seem like Andy Holt has changed a little bit now that he uh, is sort of in Cassidy's good graces. It's an amazing thing what uh, power allows you to do. We'll see that. We'll see. So another committee appointment that uh, is of note is the, that of David Byrd, um, who, Natalie? Yeah. So David Byrd, he, uh, he's a representative from Waynesboro. He was a former teacher, principal. 
he was a longtime high school basketball coach at the high school there. Last year, WSMV did a story highlighting three women's uh, allegations against Bird, saying that when they were students playing on his basketball team, girls basketball team, that he had sexually assaulted them. Um, and at the time, House Speaker Beth Harwell said that he should resign, and so did Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally. And in the months since then, there have been protests from groups like Enough is Enough, which is a, a national organization that's trying to unseat uh, other legislators, both at state legislatures and in Congress, who have these allegations against them. Uh, long story short, David Byrd was easily reelected to his position, um, but there wasn't ever anything done in the House. There was there was no investigation. He certainly didn't resign. And Glenn Cassida has stood by him uh, since then. And continues to. And uh, continues to. We caught up with Cassida after the committee announcements and Natalie pressed him on that. And he was unabashed in his support for David Byrd. And, and we should clarify, his committee assignment was chairman of the Education Administration Subcommittee. Which is one of four, I believe. Four education Educa subcommittees, yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, I think to me that really sends a signal um, more than anything that uh, to embattled lawmakers, specifically embattled Republicans, that if you, you know, uh, are in the good graces of Glenn Cassida, he's going to support you through anything almost. Clearly in Bird's case, that that worked for him. There's, you know, there's been some outrage from Democrats over the assignment. Um, but for the most part, we I don't think we've heard from any Republicans who have expressed any kind of concern with it. We have not yet. Uh, again, other uh, a couple of other notable appointments to be committee chairs are that of two Democrats, one uh, being Darren Jernigan uh, uh, in Nashville area and uh, John Mark Wendell, who is uh, of Livingston. Um, they're both kind of, you know, I, I mean, they're Democrats, but, you know, if you look at Wendell, he certainly uh, is somebody that it's not surprising, I guess, that he would be appointed given his previous praise of House Speaker Beth Harwell. He's often aligned with some Republicans on certain votes. And notably, neither of them voted for the, the Democratic leader for Speaker in that sort of formal vote the other day. Curious. Uh, Jernigan didn't vote, but he didn't vote for Karen Camper, the, the Democratic leader, as most all of the other Democrats did. And and Wendell actually voted for Cassida. Over in the Senate, there were uh, less surprising uh, moves. Um, of course, the the usual position of, of uh, the the the, the um, highest office, Lieutenant Governor McNally, was confirmed to stay in his position. Who then appointed his committees the same day that the House did. Uh, he named Bill Watson to continue his role as chairman of the Finance Committee. But there were some new members, uh, at least in new positions. Steve Dickerson will oversee state and local government. Um, uh, Paul Bailey is going to oversee commerce. One of the more intriguing ones is that of judiciary. Brian Kelsey, the Memphis um, lawmaker, uh, is no longer the chair, and it's going to be Mike Bell, um, who, uh, you know, essentially, I think, is, is going to be very different than Kelsey. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see how that committee uh, takes, you know, its action going forward. But Kelsey tweeted out, essentially, that he did not want to be on that uh, committee or at least be the chairman anymore. And I've heard from some say that he wanted to get on finance. So that's why this move was was made. But 
certainly didn't work out well for him, I guess. He didn't get any kind of promotion there. A reminder that Kelsey uh, ran for a leadership position and lost in the Republican caucus uh, that happened in December. And also, he had a very close election when he was up for re-election in the midterms this past year. Uh, So those two things may have gone against him, but he is at least trying to spin it or say that he wanted off the judiciary committee. Days before the start of the 111th General Assembly, a Tennessean investigation by Anita Wadwani and Mike Riker showed how doctors in Tennessee are being paid to review disability requests. With us today is Anita. Um, Anita, thanks for the story. It was very informative, uh, really uh, powerful journalism. Give us, uh, our listeners, a little bit of the, the highlights of what you found. Sure. So me and my colleague, Mike Riker, spent a good six months um, investigating the State Disability Determination Services Department. That department hires doctors to review applications from Tennesseans seeking federal disability payments. And what we found was that those doctors, in some cases, were were reviewing an extraordinary number of cases. They're paid by the case that they review, a flat fee that's somewhere in the neighborhood of $40. And some doctors were reviewing upwards of five cases an hour. Um, We had sources inside the disability department telling us that some doctors are treating these cases like cash registers and just going through them. And One of the things I want to note is that Tennessee has one of the highest rates of disability denials in the country. Uh, Tennessee denies over 72% of all claimants. And so we really wanted to get behind that and figure out why that was happening. And we think this is one of the reasons. What is the uh, national level of, of denial rate? Uh, the national level is 66%. Uh, Tennessee probably ranks in the bottom five states when it comes to the level of denials. Anita, do you have any sense of how long this has been going on in the state? Do you know if this is a fairly recent development where doctors started taking advantage of this system, or do you think this has been going on a while? Well, we know it's been going on for five and a half years because that is the uh, data that we reviewed. They don't keep data beyond that. So how long... Prior to that, it's been going on, I can't say. Some of these doctors are just making a ton of money in that period of time. Um, what, what, what kind of money are we talking here? Well, we, uh, some of the doctors are making quite a bit of money, and a lot of the doctors just work part-time. This is not their day job. So one physician uh, we tracked pretty closely was making upwards of $400,000 a year doing this. That phys- and, and this was the only thing he was doing? That, in, in his case, that was the only thing he was doing. Um, that particular physician was also one of half a dozen physicians uh, under contract with the department who have a lengthy history of misconduct. Uh, we found that two were felons. Um, one was barred from seeing patients and confined only to the administrative practice of medicine. A couple of others had uh, disciplinary histories with the uh, Tennessee Department of Health. As with many of your uh, great stories that you've done over the years, there's been reaction to it initially. Uh, what has that been from state lawmakers as they've been reading this and returning to Nashville? So we caught up with lawmakers on the first day of session 
And um, the lawmakers we spoke to were troubled by our findings um, and are calling for some type of investigation. Some lawmakers want the comptroller to audit the department. Others are weighing whether uh, the legislature should weigh in directly on this. Of course, we and and, and Anita will continue to keep track uh, as the legislature uh, continues this session. One other story I wanted to ask you about uh, that you recently did, Anita, uh, was related to rural health clinics and 10 care payments. Uh, this is a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, an inside baseball one, but it's nonetheless very important. Um, tell us about that and, and sort of what happened after your reporting. So rural health clinics are a special designation for healthcare providers who set up clinics in rural and underserved areas where typically there is um, little access to um, doctors and nurses, high rates of chronic disease, and high poverty levels. These clinics receive special payments from TenCare for seeing TenCare patients that really make the difference in them being able to provide care or close down. Um, TenCare last October told about 20 new rural health clinics that had sprung up, um, particularly in response to the closure of rural hospitals. These new clinics had started up to be part of the program. And in October of last year, TenCare announced that their payments to these new clinics would be suspended because TenCare wanted to take a new look at these complicated rules for how these clinics get paid. And so what, what's been the result after you uh, ended up reporting this initial finding? What we reported was the plight of some of these clinics who were afraid they were going to close down, who were really concerned about their patients, who were cutting their staff hours. Uh, and after I reported that story in late December, TenCare had a change of heart. And on Thursday of this week, they sent out a letter saying that they would restore payments. They're continuing to take a new look at their uh, rules. But in the meantime, these clinics will get paid. As usual, great reporting from uh, you and Mike Riker. Um, and we will continue to keep uh, an eye on the developments of uh, both stories. So thank you again for, for your work and for coming in. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Anita. So, you know, there were a number of things going on this week uh, when the legislature returned. One of the things that certainly got the attention of, of the Capitol Press Corps was the House Republicans' decision to, from here on out, uh, default to closing their caucus meetings. Uh, they informed us at the right before the, their first caucus meeting of the session, that moving forward, they would all be closed to media unless they specified that the meetings would be open. They had immediately after, they had one Republican caucus meeting, uh, and that was on the third day of the organizational session, in which the press corps was informed that it was going to be open. Uh, and very quickly, it was uh, showed the, the, the fraying of the Republican Party. I think the move to close it is to get rid of some of that, that dissension that we all know is there, but you know, uh, uh, to really kind of tamp down on, okay, uh, what's the internal uh, battle? going on in the party. Um, and coupled with this new rule that 
they, that they can't really air their grievances at you know the start of the day, we may not see much of that publicly now. I, I think it'll be interesting to see. Uh, obviously, Glenn Kessler's appointment of 42 members will allow him to easily rely or more easily rely on at least 42 votes in his own caucus. Uh, actually, 40, I guess, if you don't count Jernigan and Windle in that caucus. Um, but uh, it, it certainly is curious to see the closure of these caucus meetings and the shutdown of the floor uh, airing of the grievances uh, at the same time as a new appointment of speaker. Of course, uh, as Cassida took power, he took the reins back from uh, Beth Harwell, who is the longtime uh, Nashville Republican, who is the outgoing Speaker of the House. Harwell had an emotional final day where she handed off the gavel. Uh, she was standing on the podium at one point with uh, Cassida and, and f- f- previous speakers, including Jimmy Nafee. Uh, and it was really kind of when I talked to, to Harwell about it, she called it a bittersweet day and a bittersweet moment. And on the uh, also on the third uh, organizational day, the House lawmakers participated in a sexual harassment training on the House chamber floor. Uh, it was led by somebody with the Department of Human Resources with the state. Uh, essentially, last year's training, which was held in a committee room, was filled with a bunch of jokes, uh, unusual and curious questions. Um, a comment from Courtney Rogers, who is now set to join the Lee administration, in which she said, uh, that sometimes women come into the Capitol and dress provocatively, and so it's not surprising that they may get harassed. Um, that did not happen. None of that happened this year in the sexual harassment training. But what did happen was several lawmakers, you could just obviously see, weren't paying attention. A lot of them. Um, A lot of them were on their phones. They were scrolling on the phones. I saw Gary Hicks literally talking on his phone. Um, A lot of them were talking to the people sitting next to them, getting up, walking around. Yeah. So when I caught up with William Lamberth, again, the, the House Majority Leader, he said he wasn't worried about it. He thought his members were taking this very seriously. Uh, we will continue to to watch uh, this new legislature grapple with if there are any issues of sexual harassment. Uh, The Senate has yet to take their training, and they will be doing so in the same format they did in recent years with a uh, a mandatory video that they have to watch. I doubt you you could see this on the the live stream of the session that day, but for the record, Joel actually got down from the press corps desk and went and took some photos. Twice. I did it twice. We have evidence. And Governor-elect Bill Lee's transition team has announced that he has placed his assets with Lee Company into a blind trust and has stepped down as chairman of the company where he's worked for the past three decades or more. It's his family company. His decision to do so um, is a little bit different than what Haslam did with Pilot Oil. Haslam placed all of his assets in a blind trust minus his holdings with Pilot Oil. He said at the time it didn't really make sense to do that because everyone knows uh, that's his family business. He, you know, it, it would be very difficult not to to ha- to know what was going on with Pilot Oil. Phil Bredesen, before Haslam, uh, did place everything into a blind trust as well. Um, we had been waiting for several weeks to hear what Bill Lee was going to do uh, with the business, with his company, um, and and finally we have found out that he is indeed uh, officially stepped down from the company. And we also found out that uh, Bo Campbell of Waller, a Nashville-based law firm, is the uh, administrator of the Blind Trust. After 38 years, state photographer Jed DeKalb is hanging it up. He's taken photographs of the last five governors for the state, starting with Lamar Alexander and continuing on through Bill Haslam. 
and when Governor Haslam hands off control of the executive branch to Bill Lee on January 19th, Jed DeKalb is calling it a career. Here's a few excerpts of a recent interview I did with Jed reflecting on his time behind the lens as he's photographed Governors Alexander, McWhorter, Sunquist, Bredesen, and Haslam. If you can't be a photographer for the state of Tennessee and go home with a big smile on your face every day, something is uh, is amiss. It's like working my hobby for the last 38 years. Here's a story of Jed discussing one of his first assignments. A legislator had uh, requested a photographer to meet this delegation from some community uh, in the governor's office to, um, uh, to photograph them meeting with Lamar and uh, uh, they're proposing a road or a park or something. And uh, so we're all out there in the waiting room and the door opens and everybody goes, goes in and I start doing the photographer thing and start shooting some pictures and Lamar looks up and sees me with a camera and, uh, and you have to visualize how I was dressed at the time. Coming from newspapers and it was back in the animal days with the, you know, most photographers wore a flannel shirt and jeans. Well, I didn't have a flannel shirt and jeans, but I did have a, a homemade um, jean jacket that someone made for me, and I was wearing uh, Kelso Earth shoes. It was supposed to be a, a closed meeting, no press. And uh, he saw me starting to snap, and I did look like I knew what I was doing, a la press. And uh, so he hits the panic button under his desk, and doors open, security's there. And <laughs> give me the, you know, come with us. And to the best of my knowledge, and you might, any other governors you talk to, see if they've ever. Uh, hit the panic button on anyone I think I might be the only one (laughs) in the last 38 years Jed's got story after story that he tells about each governor here's one about Governor Haslam it's been fun working for every single governor and at the end of every governor someone will ask me so who's your favorite governor and it's the one that I'm just wrapping up with (laughs) Governor Haslam has been an ideal and it's it's like one of the reasons why I'm leaving <laughs> is because I feel like I've photographed the ideal the best governor that anyone ever could and uh, you know I'm not going to do another eight years so I get started on something some governors when you pick up a camera and start to shoot they like smile and give you that one look and uh uh, others, like ha- Governor Haslam, uh, just goes about his business. You you have certain things that you do with with uh, with governors. At least I do. Um, sometimes a person's tie will get a little crooked to one side, or you know it's not cinched, or some, you know the collars, sure. you know. And I've always uh, felt as though it's my place to make my chief executive look as as good as possible at all times uh one of the things do is is you know when we get ready to take the picture if the tie is off i will 
kind of go like this with my tie if his tie is is off right without saying it and embarrassing him you know uh he can just look at me and i'll do this or this and you know uh, and that's all worked good except uh one time we had jenna bush okay. at the uh residence so Bredesen, then? uh no this was uh um uh, governor haslam oh okay okay and uh uh, we're lining up and governor's tie is a little bit askew and so I start doing this and Je Jenna looks at the governor and goes is he telling me to suck it in <laughs> the governor burst out laughing and said no no he's telling me my tie is a little off <laughs> of course Jed won't tell all the stories of the things he's witnessed over the years but every governor that I've talked to for this story, he preys on both his work ethic and him as an individual, both Democrats and Republicans. My predecessor, <clears throat> Earl Warren Jr., uh, tells this story of meeting with Ned McWhorter's chief of staff. They were out on the street somewhere, and uh, it was Jim Kennedy. And Jim Kennedy was introducing Earl to someone else and um, the other person said well is he a good democrat or is he a republican and jim kennedy goes hell he's neither he's a photographer they can put that on my gravestone you know i'm i'm here to do a job it's all i ever wanted to do all right moving on to this week's notebook dump a democratic legislative staffer derek tibbs took more than $12,000 from the House Democratic Caucus's funds. An audit showed he uh, resigned last month in December after he was confronted by caucus leadership about funds that were missing. Uh, the audit that the Democrats released some information on this week uh, apparently found out that he had been taking money over the course of three years. He had been working for Karen Camper, who is now the House Minority Leader. On the first day of session, the General Assembly re-elected the state's comptroller and treasurer, comptroller Justin Wilson and treasurer David Lillard, were both re-elected to their positions. Uh, those are two-year terms and are uh, jointly voted on by the legislature. Senator Janice Bowling and Representative Ron Travis announced this week that they would introduce a bill related to medical marijuana, essentially the plan which has yet to be revealed or introduced in the legislature would, uh, would create a new government commission that would regulate um, the industry and allow patients to obtain a medical marijuana card. Campaign finance officials also pulled back on fining a few uh, Democrats this week in their latest meeting. Uh, Representative London Lamar and Representative Jesse Chisholm, both freshman Democrats from Memphis, had their fines reduced uh, for previously uh, late filing their uh, campaign finance disclosure. Lamar now owes the registry $300, uh, and Jesse Chisholm owes no money. Um, the registry also decided to not find G.A. Hardaway, who late filed two campaign finance report and does not have his latest campaign finance report in. They're giving him up until um, th this coming Friday to turn it in or he could face a fine in the future. Tennessee's only female court of appeals judge is now going to be working for the Bill Lee administration. His transition team announced this past week that Brandon Gibson, 
will now be so far the only female senior advisor on Lee's staff. She is a court of appeals judge in the western part of the state, and she will begin as a senior advisor, helping with initiatives like criminal justice reform and rural development. That's it for this week of Grand Divisions. A reminder, Bill Lee is set to be inaugurated on January 19th. We will be there, of course, covering it live. I'm not sure if we're going to have a special podcast afterwards, um, but it is certainly a historic event, and we'll be, we will be covering uh, the event for all, all of our properties at the Tennessee and the USA Today Network. Um, and so stay tuned for that. As usual, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, Please continue to rate us. That really helps a lot. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Grand Divisions 3. Uh, The podcast, which is released every Tuesday, is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Thanks again for listening. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. See you next week.